North of us, it amazes me that countries such as Indonesia still use fire to clear forests to make way for crops, plantations, notoriously of palm oil. But now Brendan May in London tells me that the situation is improving. Brendan leads the consulting group Roberts Bridge and he's especially fond of Singapore. I love Singapore. I mean, they call it the garden city, don't they? They're increasingly incorporating environmental thinking and green spaces into their planning, which is quite an achievement in what is basically a concrete jungle, but it doesn't feel like one. They're spending a vast amount on this very thing. They are. And actually, Singapore is rapidly becoming a hub for all things net zero, forward-looking climate policy, as is much of the region. But I think Singapore in particular is embracing its role as a potential hub Mm. for a lot of the thinking that may inform the wider region on this. Brendan, you've been heading an organisation for some time that looks at enterprise in such countries enterprise that is looking for a guidance to deal with the future amongst all this turbulence and doubt and concern. Why do they come to you particularly? I think they come to us partly because of our technical knowledge about issues that need to be tackled from a commercial perspective if you want to become a forward-looking business that is embracing ambitious climate policies, ambitious waste policies, supply chain policies, and, and so on. But I think the main reason, actually, they come to us is that we act as a bit of a bridge, as the name Roberts Bridge unintentionally implies, between companies and this enormous complex ecosystem of activists, campaigners, sustainability investors, academics, who collectively make up a sort of barometer of opinion, a sort of chatter, if you like, who's doing well, who's doing badly, which sectors are good, which sectors are bad, which are the laggards, who are the leaders. And we know that ecosystem quite well because a lot of us came out of it. So a lot of us were campaigners in previous lives. And a lot of us are still quite involved in campaigns and stay very close to our friends in non-governmental organisations and others. So we act as a kind of mediator or facilitator for companies in a group of organisations and people that they don't really know. So it's a bit like arriving at a wedding when you only know one person and you sort of latch on to that person and then that person introduces you to everybody else at the wedding. And we sometimes perform that role with environmental groups and others for our clients. But Australia's been pretty well static in many ways for a long time. There are lots of reasons for that, not least, I suppose, the fact that the funding for science federally is so incredibly low. I think I've said on the science show before it's 0.49% of GDP, which as the Academy of Science president, Professor Jagadish says, is just about the lowest you can get in the OECD and so on. And many young people are disillusioned about what might come in the future. But you're saying, I know, that Southeast Asia and the areas north of Australia are just sensationally doing well. I think there's a huge and quite fresh, quite recent appetite to really accelerate action on net zero and on climate change. Some of it is, of course, for directly self-interested reasons, which is a lot of those countries are on the very front line of the worst impacts of climate change, countries like Indonesia. But also the truth is that the world can't solve its own global economic and environmental problems without Southeast Asia being a major, major engine room of that change. And I think countries like Indonesia and Singapore and Malaysia realise that. It's interesting you mentioned Australia having been static. I mean, one of the reasons it's been static for the past decade is it it had a government that either didn't seem to believe in the urgency of climate change as a problem, or if they did believe it, they sure as hell weren't going to do anything about it. 
So we've sort of lost a decade, sadly, in Australia, but I would hope now with the political change that came in relatively recently that that is beginning to change. And I think it would be in Australia's interest to embrace that very, very quickly, because otherwise, of course, they'll end up importing skills and expertise from elsewhere, because everybody has to tackle this problem. I've always been of the view that you would want to home grow your own talent, your own scientific excellence, your own endeavours to tackle the climate emergency. But if you don't, at some point, you're going to have to import it from somewhere else, because it's still coming for you. I think some of the old narrative that there's no point in Western countries tackling these things for as long as you have these Asian laggards not tackling them is completely outdated because actually even countries like China and India and Indonesia, they all have net zero targets. They may not be as ambitious on timescale given their size as some of the Western economies, but we all know once China decides to move, it moves. Whereas we've been tangled up in Britain for years in debates about climate policy. So there's a kind of trade-off. It's broadly accepted here, yet we still tangle ourselves up in knots. Whereas now it's accepted in China, you would expect an economy like that to move very quickly on actually doing something about it. You've said a few kind things about uh, Indonesia just then, but I haven't been there for a long time, but we were at an event at the University of New South Wales just days ago for alumni and one of the people who was recognised with a tremendous prize, a young man who had been in the army actually with Australia, but he then turned to trying to help them clean up the gigantic pile of junk mess mountains that go into landfill. And we mentioned the fires just now. What sort of picture are you really getting of being able to cope with change on a gigantic scale like that? Well, as always, there's the constant trade-off between environmental action and economic empowerment of the people of Indonesia. A lot of that plastic waste is not theirs, of course, it's ours. Quite an important point that is overlooked, but Europe sends vast amounts of waste to Asia, which is being stopped by some Asian countries. Forest fires are by no means any more uniquely Indonesian. Look at Canada, look at Europe this summer, look at Australia, California, Oregon, terrible, terrible climate disasters unfolding all over the world. I think the reality is that Indonesia knows that it needs to engage in its own energy transition. It may take longer. It's still very coal dependent. That's going to need to change. It has, of course, the potential to be a vast carbon sink that exploits its value as a carbon sink by selling carbon credits and others, provided they are credibly managed and traded. Which is, which very, is the really important which is question. Really important. But at the end of the day, Indonesia still has very, very precious landscapes that need to be conserved. And there are some very good news stories out of Indonesia. So the palm oil sector, which we all talked about for years and years and years, has more or less ended its kind of rampant deforestation, which is how it began and got off the ground. And deforestation rates for palm oil have really plateaued in recent years. And that's because of all the no deforestation policies that the big Indonesian conglomerates signed up to, and by and large have implemented. There'll always be some encroachment and there'll always be a rogue supplier here or there. Are the orangutans going to survive? But, and I think the outlook for orangutans is not as bleak as, you know, the black and white nature of social media would have you believe. And I, I know people who work in 
orangutan conservation who are quite bullish about the prospects for orangutans. But that's only because action has been taken, because companies involved realised that they would not be able to sell their wares to Europe or the US if they didn't do something about this. But crucially, the Indonesian government enabled and encouraged them to do so. But there are other problems on the horizon. You know, there's nickel mining. We're going to need a huge amount more nickel than the world currently uses if we are going to decarbonize and electrify our global economy. And the metals are going to have to come from somewhere. Indonesia is very rich in nickel resources, but they're all in forests and we know how that might unfold. So these are very, very difficult challenges on the horizon. But I don't think anymore that these very large developing countries see economic development as the only objective because they realise they are running huge, huge climate risks, you know, particularly because of the precarious geographies and ecosystems that sit right on the front line of all the devastation we're now seeing. What finally are your greatest successes, the ones that you're proudest of in all these years? One of the things here in in Europe is we pulled together with an energy company called Ovo, uh, one of the first net zero plans of any company, and and particularly an energy company. It was called Plan Zero, and we're quite proud of that because it was quite a a forward-looking plan at the time, and many other companies in the last three or four years have followed suit. I'm very proud of the work that we do in places like Indonesia, bridging seemingly impossible divides between sceptical corporate executives and angry activists and trying to bring about reconciliation between them and achieving some really good outcomes for nature, for landscapes and for climate. And I'm really proud of the fact that, you know, somebody once said, what Robertsbridge is known for is speaking the truth to power and that we have found a way, I hope, of being, at the end of the day, a commercial business consulting firm, but one that does not compromise in the things we are willing to take on versus the things we will not take on and being very clear and direct with our clients about the changes that we think they need to make. And I think if we keep doing that, then we can continue to be useful as a bridge between two audiences who don't always meet in the middle. Even in Arab countries? We have a presence in Dubai, and I think actually that region of the world is probably the next big frontier for all of this uh, after Southeast Asia. Thank you and good luck. Thank you. Brendan May, chair of Robertsbridge, the consulting group with a hopeful view of our region's prospects. The Science Show on RN.